0: Praise forever to the King of Kings. Wow, that's a lot of words, but those are good words. Remain standing and grab your Bible as we turn to 2 Peter for our scripture reading. 2 Peter chapter 3, that's page 1208 in your pew Bible. Pastor Bruce is beginning a new sermon series this week, Persevere, Living in the Last Days. Persevere. That's a scary word. I don't like doing it, but we must all persevere. Today's sermon is Grace to Remember. 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them I am stirring up your sincere mind, Father, we come in humility to praise you forever as our King of Kings. We come submitting to your word that as it is preached today that we would bow before it, submitting to it, opening our heart to hear it, and then leaving to obey it. Father, let your spirit work in us and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. The scriptures declare that we are
1: living in the last days. The last days is a phrase that is frequently used throughout the New Testament to describe the age in which we are currently living in, the last days. In fact, the last days is the time between Christ's ascension into heaven and His second coming. And so the last days actually began some 2,000 years ago when, when Jesus ascended into heaven, and the last days will conclude when Jesus returns. Perhaps, though, the greatest temptation that we face living in these last days is losing focus as Christ followers. And when we lose focus, we tend to forget some rather important things. And forgetting can often lead to some very tragic results. Forget to turn off the iron, and you might just burn down your house. Forget about the chemistry test on Friday, and you might just fail the test. Forget your wedding anniversary, and you might spend the night in the doghouse. Forget to take out the trash, and you might stink up the house. And so there are some things that we don't want to forget. There are some things we should never forget. And the return of Jesus Christ is one of those things that we should never forget. A chorus of... New Testament authors all sing in unison, Jesus is coming. And to that we say, hallelujah, right? We can't wait. We should be looking forward to that glorious day. As pastor and author Tim Jennings wrote, this world is stamped with an expiration date. In fact, you can already smell the stench of its decay. And according to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, He tells us that we can actually see the deterioration of the world all around us. We can actually feel the the groaning within our bodies all pointing to that day when Jesus returns. But despite these blaring horns of revelation, it is easy to forget that we are living in the last days. It It is easy to lose sight of the fact that Jesus is coming and that deliverance and destruction are fast approaching. As believers in Jesus Christ, we we face countless trials that that tempt us to quit, to not persevere, to to stop following Jesus. But Peter here in this book, and especially here in chapter 3, he he gives us some hope. He, He wants to assure us that one day Jesus will rescue us from this fallen world. And until that day arrives, he is now pleading with us to persevere in the faith, to persevere in these last days. And that's what Peter means when he writes at the very end of this chapter here, chapter 3 in verses 17 and 18, you might want to turn there and look at it. Look what he writes. He says, You therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. What's Peter saying? We can summarize it. He's saying simply persevere. Persevere. As Christ's followers, persevere in your faith in these last days. And, And Peter knows better than anyone else that the foundation for persevering is God's Word. In fact, Peter's loving concern for true believers in his day as well as in our day now, his loving concern for all true believers is that we will remember God's Word in these last days. Notice what Peter writes again in verse 1 of chapter 3. Look at it in your Bibles. He says, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of what? Reminder. Now, it's interesting. Peter calls these believers beloved. Why? Why does he do that? And it's intentional He calls them that. He's reminding them that they are the recipients of God's love in Jesus Christ. They are actually loved by God. But I also think Peter wants them to know how much he himself cares about these believers that he's writing to. He cares for them. In fact, he calls them beloved four different times in this chapter. And so they are not only loved by God, they are also loved by Peter. And then he assures them that they have sincere minds, and he's contrasting that with the false teachers of chapter 2 who do not have sincere minds. In other words, Peter wants them to know that although they may be shaken in their faith at times in these last days, they are still true believers in the faith if they will persevere. They still believe the gospel. They are still clinging to Jesus as their only hope. They are not letting go of that. They are embracing it. They are persevering. And so don't give up in the last days. Persevere. And the question is how. In the answer that Peter gives us to start off with, he says, remember God's word. That's how. We need to remember something here. Peter's goal is to stir this up within us. We, In fact, uh, in our series in re engaging the church, we saw in the last, uh, in the third message there in Hebrews chapter 10, that we are to stir up others to good works. And this is the same idea. Peter wants to stir up, he wants to provoke within us, he wants to motivate within us to remember God's word as Christ followers. Why? So that we won't give up our faith so that we won't lose focus in these last days, so that we won't be deceived by false teachers, especially when it comes to the return of Jesus Christ. Here is Peter's message to us that he wants us to remember. Look at this in your notes. Notice it. His message is this. In spite of mockers who scoff at the promise of Christ's coming, God's word promises that Christ will return. So remember it. Remember God's Word. Remember the promises that are in the Word of God. Peter tells us here in chapter 1 that God has given us some precious promises, and one of those precious promises that we have been given is that Jesus is coming again. Now, this is the kind of promise that should inspire hope while living in the last days if we will focus on it, if we will remember it. Peter writes in Chapter 3 here in verse 13, he says, But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But if the promise of Christ's coming is going to inspire us, if it's going to motivate us, if it's going to fill us with hope, then we have to really believe it's going to happen. The problem going on in Peter's day is these believers were being influenced not by God's word, but by a different voice. And that is the voice of the scoffers, the voice of the false teachers who did not believe that it was going to happen. That is the return of Jesus Christ. And so now their faith is being shaken, and Peter's writing to them to reassure them, to refocus them, to get them to realign their lives on what they should be focused on and living about and persevering. Remember the word of God, which brings us to the key question Peter addresses in this letter. Was Jesus wrong to promise that he would return? In other words, do the scoffers have a point when they argue that the long delay of Christ's return invalidates the promise of his return? This is the same question we are still facing today. After 2,000 years, questions about whether Jesus will return. The, the manner of his return and why he has not returned are even more relevant. Because if Jesus is not going to return, then it would be foolish to wait for his return, would it not? If the promises of Christ's return are false, then we may as well just eat, drink, and be merry like the scoffers Peter is attacking here. So how then can Peter argue that these scoffers are wrong and that he is right because of God's word. That's why. It's reliable, and it is powerful. In fact, throughout these first seven verses, Peter's whole emphasis here is on the word of God. His whole concern is that we would remember the word of God in the last days, and he gives us two reasons why. And the very first reason is because God's word is reliable. Remember God's word Is reliable. The implication here in verses 1 and 2 is that we need to be reminded of something. And the reason is because we tend to be forgetful. And so, therefore, we need to be reminded and we need to remember. And Peter is telling us here, we need to remember God's word. Why? Because it's easy for us to become distracted in the last days, especially by our culture. It's also easy for us, for our thinking, to become distorted in these last days by those who attack the very reliability of the Word of God. And so Peter tells us in verses 1 and 2, now this is the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should do what? What? Remember. So I'm reminding you now to do what? To remember something. And specifically, to remember what is being taught, what is being proclaimed, what's being promised in the Word of God. Notice what he says. Remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. In other words, Peter probably has in mind the predictions of the Old Testament prophets concerning the day of the Lord, perhaps maybe even one of which was in Malachi chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, where that prophet says, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evil evildoers will be stubbled. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out like leaping, like calves from the stall. Perhaps Peter, when he speaks of the commandment of the Lord, he has a view of the the very words of Jesus Christ in Matthew 24, where Jesus says, Therefore you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect Him. Whatever words Peter has in mind here, we can be assured of this word, and that is God's word is reliable. You can bank on it. What the Bible teaches about the day of the Lord, it was not invented by the apostles like Peter. The prophets taught it, and so did Jesus Christ. In fact, you go back to chapter 1 of this book, 2 Peter, and Peter's already talked about this. He's already proved that the promise of Christ's return, it was not a myth. It was not based on a myth. Now, that begs the question, what is the day of the Lord? Well, it's the day of judgment that climaxes with the return of Jesus Christ, which means that for unbelievers, those who do not believe in Jesus Christ, those who have not yet accepted him as their Lord and Savior, put their faith and trust in what Jesus has done for them on the cross and his resurrection. For unbelievers, destruction is certain. But it also means that for believers in Jesus Christ, deliverance is coming. God has proven countless times in the past that he does not overlook evil. And Peter promises that God will not overlook it in the future. But just as God is faithful to bring destruction on rebels, he will bring deliverance to the righteous. Peter tells us in verse 3, he says, knowing this, knowing this first, that scoffers will come, in the last days. So what Peter's about to do, he's getting ready to tell us something of overwhelming importance. Something that is so important that we should not ignore it. Rather, our heightened senses should be attuned to it. We should be waiting to read what he says, waiting to hear what he says so that we can pay attention to it. And so notice the reliability of God's word. Here's what he's telling us. God's word predicts scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing at the promise of Christ's coming. So not only does God's word predict the coming day of the Lord, it also predicts that scoffers will come who actually deny that promise. Now, here's the very irony of all this. The presence of scoffers in the last days is actually proof that God's word is reliable. It's also proof that the last days are here and that Christ's coming is near. Again, what are the last days? The last days refers to that period of time between Christ's first coming and his second coming, which means that the last days is not a date out in the future. Listen, we are living in the last days now, and it will always be marked by the presence of scoffers. Now, what's a scoffer? Who are these scoffers or mockers? One Bible scholar defines a scoffer as someone who treats lightly that which ought to be taken very seriously. Our world today is filled with scoffers or marker. It's filled with modern-day scoffers. And oftentimes these scoffers can be your neighbors, your coworkers. They can even be nice people at times, good people at times. Our world is filled with modern-day scoffers who treat lightly what ought to be taken seriously. You see, a scoffer usually projects a, a certain intellectualism, often in arrogance. Often they will not listen to wise counsel. They will even rebu- uh, reject uh, a rebuke their like the people in Noah's day who mocked the very idea that God would destroy the world with a flood, or the people in Jesus' day who mocked Jesus at his trial, and then when he was on the cross, they went by and mocked him more. Scoffers make fun of people. They make fun of ideas. They make fun of truth, especially truth that they don't agree with. And so if that truth does not fit their narrative, they mock it. And they mock the people who say it. That is our world today. And in this context of 1 Peter, the mockers cynically mocked the very idea that Jesus is coming again to judge the world, saying, where is the promise of his coming? Now, on the surface, you have to admit, that is a really fair question. That is a very fair question. But their underlying reason for asking that question actually reveals their sneering skepticism in verse 4. Look what Peter says. For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So two observations about scoffers. The first observation is this. The scoffer's question is rooted in their desire to continue living in their sins without any moral accountability. That's where the question is rooted in. Peter says in verse 3, look at it again. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following what? Following Jesus Christ? Following the ways of of God's word? No, following their own sinful desires. And so here's the idea. Here's what he's saying. Their flawed doctrine is leading them to flawed living. Flawed doctrine will lead you to flawed living. In other words, their flawed doctrine is what? They deny the return of Jesus Christ. They don't believe in the return of Jesus Christ. It is a flawed doctrine. They don't believe in a final judgment by Jesus Christ. And that flawed doctrine is now leading them to a flawed living. Peter says they follow what? They're not following the word of God. Instead, they are following their own sinful desires. And so if you're following your own sinful desires, listen, the last thing you want to believe is that there is a future judgment because if there is no return of Christ, then there is no judgment by Christ. Think of it this way. If your lifestyle contradicts God's word, then you're either going to change your lifestyle or you're going to begin to change what God's word says. And these scoffers chose the latter approach. So they scoffed at the very coming, the promise of the coming of Jesus Christ in judgment. The second observation is the scoffers' argument is based on their assumption that God does not intervene in history. Notice their argument in verse 4. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. So what's their argument? Here it is. It's the uniformity of the world. That's their argument. The uniformity of the world, which basically argues this. Nothing cataclysmic has happened in the past, so there's no reason to believe it will happen in the future. That's the argument they're making. What they are arguing is that our world is a closed world system which has no room for a God to break into human history. They convince themselves that God has not intervened in the world's affairs since time began, and therefore they assume that God will not do so in the present or any time in the future. Now, this is a very modern day argument for rejecting the second coming of Jesus Christ. This argument is called and I'm going to use a very big word here, uniformitarianism. And uniformitarianism basically says everything stays the same. The laws of nature are constant. They're unchanging. In fact, one author, David Hoke, writes, and I quote what he's writing here, uniformitarianism is a closed system model of the universe which does not have room for divine intervention in the space-time continuum. It is the result of the prideful thinking of man without God. It has no room for creation, for supernatural or miraculous occurrences, or for the second coming and judgment which brings history as we know it to a close. And so at the very heart of this argument is a fundamental problem with the very idea of God as our creator and our ruler of which we will give an account of our lives to. So why would these scoffers in the past, like in Peter's day, and even people today, why would they maintain such a worldview? Well, because if there's no God who intervenes in human affairs, then there's no God that I have to obey with my life. There's no God that I have to answer to. I can be my own God. I can do what I want. I can live the way I want. And when I die, I won't be accountable to anybody which also means there's no God who will return to judge the world. That's why people maintain this view deep down, even though they may not express it that way. So how does Peter answer this argument by the scoffers? He simply reminds them, and you understand he's not actually talking to the mockers. He's talking to believers like us about these scoffers, and he's he's answering their argument to believers like us, and he's saying, He's reminding us of what God has done in the past as proof that God can and will do what he says in the future. Which brings us to the second reason to remember God's word. The first reason to remember God's word is what? It's reliable. But God's word is also powerful. So remember that as well. Remember, God's word is powerful, number two. And I just love Peter here. He doesn't waste any time in exposing the flawed reasoning of these scoffers. He gets right to it in verses 5 and 6. Look what he says. He calls them out. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed, was diluted with water and perished. So here's the flawed reasoning of the scoffers. Notice it in your notes. Scoffers deliberately do what? They deliberately overlook or they ignore the fact that God relates to the world by means huh, of His powerful Word. Did you notice what Peter says first about these scoffers? He says they deliberately overlook. Deliberately overlook. And that word deliberately, it stresses the self-will of the scoffers. What that means, this is not accidental. This is not like you just accidentally forgot something. You accidentally overlooked what God has done in the past. No, they are deliberately overlooking it. In other words, they are choosing to ignore the truth They are deliberately, with eyes wide open, denying the truth. And Peter accuses them of intentionally blinding themselves from the activity of God in history. And then he points out two events in history to prove his point. Notice this, the two events. Scoffers ignore what? They ignore, first of all, the fact that God created the world by his powerful word. That's the first event that they ignore. They overlook it deliberately. Look what Peter says again in verse 5. He says, For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of the water and through the water by the word of God. Now, what Peter's doing, he's taking us back to Genesis chapter 1. He's taking us back to the Genesis creation account where you find the same phrase repeated over and over and over again in Genesis 1 in the creation account. And that phrase is, then God said, then God said. In fact, nine different times in Genesis 1, you will find the phrase, then God said, then God said, then God said. Think about it this way. The way God creates is how? It's by speaking. Psalm 36, verse 6 says, By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. And so the first first thing these scoffers ignore is that God created this world in which we are living by his word. He spoke it into existence, and he even upholds the world. Even today, he sustains it by his word. Now, if they were just willing to think about this a little bit, they would realize that the course of natural events is no more locked into one pattern than God is. If God is free to speak a new word, then nature is free to change as well. Pastor and author, well, he's actually a retired pastor now, still an author, John Piper says this, he says we need to guard ourselves against the pseudo-scientific notion that nature is a law unto itself. It is not. The laws of nature are the tireless whisperings of the Almighty. And if he should choose to raise his voice, the cataclysm will come. <laughs> Which brings us to the second fact that scoffers ignore, the very catechism that came in the course of history that is known as the flood. Notice his scoffers ignore the fact that God not only created the world by his powerful word, but that God flooded the world by his powerful word. Look what Peter writes again in verse six. He says, for they deliberately overlooked this fact and that by means of these, the world that then existed was diluged with water and perished. In other words things have not continued as they were from the very beginning of creation. And Peter says, here's the proof. Remember the flood. That's the proof. God intervened at that moment in history, and he brought judgment on the world because sin was so rampant when he flooded the world by his powerful word. So how then can scoffers claim that everything has continued on just as it was from the beginning of creation when God directly intervened in the most catastrophic event in history because they deliberately, they willfully choose to deny God's word. That's how. And so like carriage horses wearing blinders on their eyes, these people cultivate eyes of ignorance. Ignorance. They intentionally ignore the facts of God's word and even the evidence from history because they don't desire a true saving knowledge of the Lord. And having presented his case now, having presented his argument that God has indeed intervened in the course of human history, Peter's now ready to make his final point. And it comes in verse 7. Look what he says. He says, but... But, it's in contrast. Here's his final point. It's the exclamation. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. Listen, Peter's point is loud and clear. And that is this. God will deliver on his promise. That's his point. In verse 7, God will deliver on his promise, so remember his word in the last days because God's word is reliable and it is powerful. Remember the same word of God that created the world and flooded the world with water is the same word of God that is preserving the world and even reserving the world for judgment with fire. In other words, God is able to intervene in the course of human history. Listen, God did it in the past at creation. He did it again at the flood. And He will do it again when Christ returns. And so just because we here, we do not see God actively judging the world and bringing justice upon this world and to people like we desire is not mean He is weak or he is inactive. Listen, God has the power to, quote, break in at any time in the course of history and accomplish his will. He can send rain from heaven or he can send fire from heaven. As Psalm 115.3 reminds us, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And so remember God's word in these last days. Listen, God's word is reliable, and God's word is powerful. But what will that day be like when Jesus returns? Peter tells us what it will be like. Did you notice it in verse 7? Peter describes that day when Jesus returns as a day of judgment and destruction for who? The ungodly, those who do not know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Now, this should cause us to shudder in fear of such a holy God. God's word is telling us here through Peter that sin and sinners will be judged. I know that's not a message we want to hear. It's not a message our culture wants. It'll get you in trouble, in fact. It'll get you canceled. But listen to what the prophet Ezekiel says in 18, verse 4. It says, For everyone belongs to me, the parent as well as the child. Both alike belong to me. The one who sins is the one who will die. Most of us here are familiar with what Paul writes in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, where he says, For the wages of sin is what? Death. And so the reality that judgment is coming should cause us to, to shudder in fear. It should... It should cause us to look at our lives and evaluate what my relationship is like before a holy God. But it should also cause us to turn to God's love in saving faith. Listen, God has provided his son Jesus as our sin bearer. Hallelujah. Jesus has paid the penalty for our sins. Praise God. Listen, His death on the cross has satisfied God's divine justice so that we now can be redeemed for our sins. We can now be reconciled to a holy God. And so for this reason, the writer of Hebrews asks the question in Hebrews 2, verse 6. He says, how shall we escape? Escape what? Final judgment that's coming. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation that God has provided for us? And the answer is, you will not escape God's judgment if you do not receive him as your Savior and Lord. You will not escape if you continue to neglect God's son but let us remember here this morning and let us remember with grateful hearts let us remember with praise to God that God's word is reliable and it is powerful even in salvation it will deliver those who have trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior remember just as God is faithful to bring destruction our rebels he will bring deliverance to the righteous. Jesus himself says in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes him who has sent me has what? Eternal life. He does not come into judgment. That, In other words, the one who believes and has eternal life through Jesus Christ, he does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. So in these last days, life bridge. Let us remember that God's word, let us remember God's word, yes, in his coming judgment, but also in his salvation. And until that day comes, until Jesus comes, may we persevere in our faith. May we persevere in the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we persevere in these last days. In other words, as we have seen in our study through the book of Philippians, let us persevere in walking worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let us, as we saw in the study of Ephesians, let us walk worthy and persevere in walking worthy of our calling in salvation. Persevere in these things. Now, whether you realize it or not, every one of us here this morning, we live with convictions and expectations. Every one here does. You have some convictions. Even though you may have never written them down, you maybe have never intentionally thought about those convictions. And you have expectations. You have expectations about life and how it should go. And when it doesn't go that way, you get disappointed, discouraged, and some people ultimately very despairing. You have expectations about your job. If I work, I should get what? Pay. I should be compensated. I should get rewarded with monetary value. That's an expectation you have. You have expectations about the government. The government, whether it's in our country or other countries, whatever the case, you have expectations about how the government should handle itself, how the government and our elected officials should operate and what they should do. You have, and the expectations are all across the map in our country today. You have expectations about your marriage. You have expectations about your family. You have expectations when it comes to your friends. You ha- even have expectations when it comes to this church. And so we all live with expectations, and you also have convictions about all of these things, whether you realize it or not. You have some type of convictions about them. And the reality is, most of our convictions and expectations are shaped by our culture. Which will distract you from persevering in your faith in these last days. And so what Peter is doing for us here, here in chapter 3... He is pleading with us, and he is saying when he writes to us, remember God's word, in that phrase, in that plea to remember God's word, he is also reminding us that as Christ followers, our convictions and our expectations need to be shaped not by the culture in which we live, but rather by the word of God itself. In our culture today, in the day in which we live in these last days, these two come in conflict all the time. The question is, we're out in the world, and so we're going to be, we're going to be shaped, whether we realize it or not, by our culture, the media, friends, where we work. Whatever the narrative is out there, we're being shaped by it. Our convictions and expectations are being shaped by it. And the only way to counter that is to be shaped by the Word of God, which means we have to be under the Word of God in the exhortation and the worship service, which means we need to be taught the Word of God, which is why we have Discovery Hour coming up next Sunday. It also means why we need to be in the Word of God on our own, reading it, meditating on it, countering what the culture is telling us. When Peter says, remember the word of God, it's not just remember intellectually. It is to remember in such a way that it becomes your lifestyle now. Your conduct, your behavior, your attitude when it comes to all these things that I just mentioned. Life, marriage, job, finances, family, you name it, government. So when it comes to those things, are your expectations shaped by the culture or by the Word of God? Listen, folks, now more than ever, we need to be shaped by the Word of God. We desperately need to be shaped by God's Word. And so let us live in the context of what Peter's saying here. Let us, first of all, live with an expectation of what? That Jesus is coming again. He is coming soon. That ought to be our expectation. Why? Because it's based on the Word of God. It is reliable. It is powerful. And then we ought to be shaped with the conviction that God will bring deliverance to the righteous in Jesus Christ. Is that something you believe with all your heart? Do you live by that conviction? If so, then your conduct, your behavior, your attitude, how you relate then ought to be motivated in such a way that you live worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Your priorities in life are going to look way different than your coworkers and your neighbors who are unbelievers. Remember the word of God. And by remembering the word of God, we ought to be shaped by the word of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please forgive us for having expectations that are shaped by the priorities of the world and not by the word. Father, forgive us for forgetting that your promise is as reliable and powerful as the word that made the world, that flooded the world, that keeps the world and will one day judge the world. And help us now to flee to Jesus as our only hope of salvation. And Father, give us the grace. Oh, do we need the grace to remember, the grace to persevere, to keep focused in these last days on what's most important. And so God, help us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matt, Zach, and the praise team have come on up and We're going to end the service by praising our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, with one last song. And as we get ready to do that, I want to leave you with this promise from Titus chapter 2. Listen to what it says. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. And we are instructed to turn from godless living and sinful pleasures. We should live in this evil world with with wisdom, it says, with righteousness and devotion to God while we look forward with to that wonderful day when the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ will be revealed. He gave his life to free us from every kind of sin, to cleanse us and to make us his very own people, totally committed to doing good deeds. May that be you this week and forever going forward. Will you stand and let us sing?